So Exodus starting from 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. 
and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word, and we pray now that you'd give us a seriousness of mind and spirit, that as we consider what you have to say to us, that uh, you'll be working in, in us, uh, informing us and transforming us, that uh, we would be more like your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. When we think of Egypt, uh, we think of the pyramids, don't we? Those uh, great uh, stone monuments that emerge from the desert sands, which define their landscape and which define their nation. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are more pyramids in the Sudan than there are in Egypt. But in Egypt, there's at least 135 pyramids. But the one that we all know is the Great Pyramid of Giza. It's very old. Uh, It was built in the 26th century BC. That's old, isn't it? And it's the only, only one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that is surviving till today. And for nearly 4,000 years, it was the tallest building in the world until in the Middle Ages they learnt how to build cathedrals that were really tall with really tall spires. But for 4,000 years, the Great Pyramid of Giza was the tallest building uh, on the planet. That's a good record, isn't it? Uh, When it was built, the Great Pyramid did not have the raw earthy, stony appearance that it has today. Uh, most of the pyramids were, uh, were covered with a, with a limestone surface and their capstones on the very top was coated with uh, silver or with gold or with electrum, which is a, uh, an alloy of, a naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold. So imagine that. Imagine that scene. Uh, glistening in the North African sun were these majestic symbols of, of sophistication and of, of majesty and of greatness. And it was into this dazzling world that a nomadic herdsman by the name of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and his household uh, entered and found refuge. They came from Canaan, a land which was to the northeast of, of Egypt, a land which is sandwiched between North Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia, and a region which, like the whole of the area, was suffering from devastating drought. Jacob's family had been welcomed into Egypt by no lesser man than Pharaoh himself. And we know the reason why, don't we? Because when we looked at uh, the book of Genesis early on this year, we heard the story about how it was Jacob's own son, uh, Joseph, who, under the sovereign hand of God, and how God used, uh, worked with uh, the sinfulness of man who sold him into slavery, 
but God meant it for good because Joseph uh, emerged in Egypt as uh, one who could give God's guidance and one who uh, became a great leader. And it was Joseph who rescued Egypt from the crippling effects of this drought that had uh, swept the whole area. Uh, the other day I was watching a movie on TV with, uh, at home and I'd started watching the movie halfway through it. And ten minutes after I'd started watching it, Cassie said to me, have you understood the story as yet? And I hadn't. I said, sweetheart, I can't figure this out for the life of me. I hadn't worked it out. The book of Exodus is a little bit like that in the sense that it's really part two of the book of Genesis. In fact, they tell me, I, I'm not a, don't know much about Hebrew, but um, they tell me that in the uh, Hebrew that the book of Exodus starts with the word and, and it's a continuation of Genesis. But if you care to, t if you care to turn to Exodus chapter 1, uh, we are helped here to some extent because the author in verses 1 to 5 gives us a bit of a recap. He reminds us of Jacob and his 12 sons uh, that uh, they are now all safely in Egypt with their families and the whole of uh, Jacob's household. But at the end of Genesis, we saw that although Jacob's family was settled in in Egypt, that they did not consider Egypt to be their home, nor did they consider it to be their future. Uh, when Jacob died, uh, where was he buried? Canaan. <clears throat> the Pharaoh organised it. They had a big Egyptian funeral that took place in Canaan. Uh, when Joseph was about to die, he expressed the desire that when he did die, that eventually, in due time, that his body would be taken to Canaan and that he would rest with his fathers. Even though for Joseph that meant a, was a real turnaround in his thinking about his own identity, uh, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd assumed the identity of an Egyptian, but he came to understand and comprehend and appreciate his identity of one of, the, uh, of one of the descendants of Abraham. And so these were people who were people of promise because Jacob's grandfather was Abraham and Abraham was a man to whom God had made certain promises. You remember what those promises were, don't you? There were three key promises. What were the three key things that God promised to Abraham? He promised him firstly a, a land, secondly a people and thirdly a blessing. A land, a people, a blessing. It was a, the promise that the whole of the land of Canaan from the Nile in the west right through to the Euphrates River which is modern day Iraq that that whole land of Canaan would belong to the descendants of Abraham, even though at the time of the giving of those promises, Abraham and his wife Sarai were very old and were very much without children. But the promise was that one day that he would be the father of many. They would be God's people living in God's land under God's blessing. But where are they now? 
They're in Egypt. But the promise that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the promise that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, was now starting to gain some traction. Because in verses 6 and 7, what do we see? The Israelites, that is the, the family of Jacob, the descendants of, of, of Jacob, who was also known as Israel, the Israelites had multiplied. Now, the part of Egypt where they had settled was uh, the area which is called Goshen. And we're told that, uh, that that area was now teeming with Israelites. If you were one of the, uh, the old-time local Egyptians, you'd be thinking, we're starting to play spot the Egyptian around here because uh, these Israelites, they're all over the place. They've taken over. Now, over time... People forgot how it was that they came, the Israelites had come to live in Egypt. And most importantly, there was a new pharaoh in power. It may be a new dynasty that it's referring to. There's a new pharaoh in power and he knew nothing about how God had blessed Egypt through Joseph. He knew nothing of that. And as an ethnic minority, you see, uh, it's easy for politicians to demonise ethnic minorities and to uh, make them to appear to be the ones who are responsible for all of the problems. And it's easy uh, to generate fear. And as an ethnic minority, in the short term, this particular pharaoh he saw them as a good source of labour for the building of a couple of his cities. But in the long term, he wanted them extinct. Take a look at verse 8 of chapter 1. <clears throat> in verse 8, we're told, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Now, you see he's concerned there. He's, he's demonising them. He thinks that they're going to become <clears throat> they're too many of them and too powerful, but he also doesn't want them to leave the country. Uh, it seems that he's already got a view in mind of what comes next, and that is their labour. And you see the irony here, though, because his goal was that they should not leave Egypt, but what he was about to do, in fact, turns out the very reason why they left Egypt. Well... <coughs> And, and there's a sense in which that's almost prophetic. And there, we see this sometimes in the scriptures, don't we, when people make statements that, that come true as a, as a matter of irony. For example, Caiaphas, when the Jewish leaders were uh, plotting to kill uh, Jesus, and he says, don't you know that it's better for one man to die than for you know, everyone, the whole nation, to be, to be punished? And the irony there, of course, is that the very death of Jesus uh, was better for everyone 
and he took our punishment upon himself in our place. But he's got a plan. Do you see what Pharaoh's plan is there? There's a couple of things. First of all, in verses 11 through to 14, he enslaves the Israelites. Now, historians tell us that life for the average Egyptian at that time was not exactly ideal. But for an ethnic minority, it was, it was much worse. It was easy for Pharaoh to demonise these people. It was easy for Pharaoh to drum up fear and hatred uh, so that the average person would support his policy of enslavement so that he could get his cities built on the cheap. Verse 14. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So that's his first policy, enslavement. Secondly, in the long term, however, Pharaoh wants the Israelites wiped out. So in verses 15 through to 22, To the policy of enslavement, he adds the policy of ethnic cleansing. How did he do that? Infanticide. You see, he wants his free labour now, but he doesn't want any future generation to grow up. And so he speaks to the the women uh, whose job it was to be the, the midwives, the nurses, for these Hebrew slaves. Now, uh, by the way, uh, just in case you're wondering, the word Hebrew, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a nickname for Israelites. It, it comes from uh, another one of their ancestors, uh, but it's, it came to be a, a, mid, a, a nickname and it's often just used interchangeably. Uh, and in fact, the language, we call it the Hebrew language. So Pharaoh gets these Hebrew midwives and he commands them with these words. He says, when you're delivering a baby, if it's a boy, then kill it. If it's a girl, uh, let her live. It doesn't explain why to us, but I would uh, speculate that uh, part of the thinking here is that in uh, ancient thinking, the, the descendancy... Uh, goes through the male line and uh, you know these Hebrew women could be good wives for Egyptian men as well who knows but the policy is to kill the young baby boys now at a human level what this means is that God's promise to Abraham of uh, many many descendants Uh, descendants occupying, possessing the land of Canaan, that that promise uh, at a human level is now under threat. But Pharaoh is no match for God. Uh, What happened to the population when they were enslaved? Well, verse 12, in verse 12, but the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Well, that didn't work particularly well for them, did it? Uh, And what about the infanticide policy? Well, in verse 17, the midwives did not kill the baby boys. Uh, The midwives 
defied Pharaoh's command. And why? Well, it was because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. That sounds right, doesn't it? You see, friends, the Bible teaches us to obey our governments. In Romans 13, we're told to obey the, the rulers that God has set over us. And that's why Christians make very good citizens, because we will obey our governments because we obey our God, who says obey your governments. But not when the law of the land contradicts what it, that which is right in God's sight. And so there are times when we must defy the governments. And that will take courage. It will take a willingness to suffer punishment as well for the sake of the honour of God. Verse 18. The, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and he asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, what do you think of that? Are they telling porkies? Is that the truth? Well, they might be more, well, I don't know, they're more vigorous or not, but no, they, they actually lied, didn't they? They've, they've lied to Pharaoh. Uh, and that raises ethical uh, questions for us. You know, is there a time when it's right to not tell the truth to someone? Um, uh, I guess that uh, when we lie to someone, the, what's at the very heart, the essence of a lie, what makes it wrong is that we breach relationship with that person, don't we? That we deceive that person for the sake of our own personal advantage. But given the choice of breaching relationship with, a, with an evil pharaoh uh, or murdering innocent babies, I think the choice is clear, isn't it? <laughs> There's a sense in which pharaoh has forfeited his right to the truth because these babies have got a God-given right to their lives. Um, this is not a license to tell fibs. <laughs> but it's saying that the life of a human being is more important than the relationship with this particular pharaoh. Now, what does God think about this? Well, we know what God thinks about what they did, actually, because of verse 20. In verse 20... So God, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and become even more numerous and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. There's no sense here in which the midwives are condemned for what they said to Pharaoh. Uh, there's every sense here in which God has said, actually, uh, you feared me more than you feared Pharaoh. So <clears throat> they were courageous women. Now, Pharaoh, therefore, becomes increasingly frustrated because his plans aren't working. And so now he, he goes to stage three of his policy development. He really lets loose now and he issues an edict to all of his subjects. And the edict is that every newborn baby boy, I'm presuming Hebrew baby boys, but every baby boy is to be thrown into the Nile River 
Sounds a bit like Herod, you know, at the birth of Jesus, doesn't it? Right? Pharaoh had made the river to be a symbol of death. But for the Egyptians, the Nile was actually a symbol of life. It was the source of life. And so too here, because in chapter 2, a son is born to a Hebrew couple. Now, for three months, the, the mother hid this son, but there's only so long a period of time that you can hide a baby boy without anyone noticing. And so in verse 3 of chapter 2, his mother actually obeys Pharaoh's edict in a sense, but not in the way that Pharaoh intended. What does she do with her baby boy? Well, she goes and places him in the Nile River, doesn't she? Just as Pharaoh had said. But he didn't say anything about you can't put the baby in a basket. <laughs> and she, she hid him in the, in the reeds along the side of the river. And you know what? In the... That was the ancient equivalent to going and leaving a baby on the doorstep of a church. <laughs> because where did Egyptian women go to to bathe? They went down to the river. And she would have known this, that this is, there's a likelihood that someone's actually going to find her baby there. Now, the, the story is full of irony because in verse 5, who is it who rescues the baby? Who is it who goes down to have, have a wash that day? It is none other than the daughter of Pharaoh. He wanted them out of his country. Now he's going to have one right in his household. <laughs> How good is God? The daughter of Pharaoh who in verse 9 unwittingly goes and hires the actual mother of Moses... To, to nurse the little baby uh, until he's weaned and then she will take him and adopt him as her son and he will live in the palace with her. And you know what? She's going to pay the mother to do it. <laughs> it's like Centrelink payments, <laughs> maternity allowance, whatever. Right? So there's great irony in all of this. Now, in verse 10, his birth mother names him Moses, which in Hebrew means, I drew him up out of the water. And in Egyptian, it means something like to give birth to a son. Isn't that lovely? Now, the rest of Exodus is about this baby boy who grows up and becomes a man, Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, we're told that Moses lived for 120 years and the life of Moses can actually be divided up into three 40-year sections. Uh, we know how Moses spent the last 40 years of his life. Can anyone tell me how did he spend the last 40 years of his life? What was he doing for 40 years before he died? He was Lachlan? Wandering around in the desert with the Israelites who he'd led out of Egypt. So that's the last 40 years of his life was in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, the first 40 years of his life is summed up for us here in verse 11 of chapter 2. Let me read that. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. 
Now, in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, you might want to write that down. Acts chapter 7, verse 23, we're told that all of this happened when Moses was 40 years old. Right? So the first 40 years of his life is just zipped past. Uh, what we do know about these first 40 years of his life was that, is that he grew up as an adopted prince in the splendour and in the intrigue of the Egyptian court. And yet, he seems to somehow know of his Hebrew origins. He seems also to have grown up to be a man who has uh, compassion for people, uh, a sense of rightness, and a, uh, a willingness to and a courage to stand up for people who have been victimised and to rescue people. Now that's what we see in the, in the rest of chapter 2. And we see it in three ways. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, uh, when Moses ventured outside the palace and wandered around his own people, the Hebrews, he witnessed a Hebrew slave being brutally treated by an Egyptian slave master and he had compassion. And Moses rescued the Hebrew slave, but the way that he rescued the Hebrew slave was by... He actually had to kill the Egyptian master and hide his body. Secondly, in verses 13 and 14, he the next day witnesses two Hebrew slaves fighting with one another and he tried to rescue the situation by intervening and as he did so, uh, the person who started the fight turned on him but in the process, he became aware that it was now public knowledge the day before he had killed the Egyptian slave master. Now, Moses knows that to defend a Hebrew slave by killing the Egyptian master, well, that's treason. And that's punishable by death. He rightly concludes that his own life is now in jeopardy and so he flees Egypt in fear of his very life. And he flees a long distance. He travels a long way east of Egypt, uh, across into the Middle East, what we would call the Middle East, uh, to the land of Midian. And he settles there. Now thirdly, in verses 15 through to 21, he was, uh, one day he was, he was at a well, uh, in Midian and you can imagine a, a well in the kind of a pretty arid kind of environment. People would go there to water their, their livestock, their sheep, their goats, perhaps cattle and <clears throat> camels and so on. And as he's sitting there at this well in Midian, there were seven girls or seven young women who were all sisters and they were there too and they were trying to water their father's flock but there were some shepherds there as well who obviously didn't want these girls to water their father's flock and the, the shepherds harassed these young women and they drove them away and Moses, as we've seen, is not a man who can stand by and see people get bullied like that without actually uh, intervening. And that's what he does. In verse 17, and we've just got to use our imaginations here as to how he did this, in verse 17, he got up, he came to their rescue 
and he watered their flock. He's told these shepherds where to, what to do. <laughs> and they've, he's scared them away. And then he went and married one of the girls and spent the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd raising a family in Midian and with his father-in-law Jethro. Meanwhile, in verse 23, back in Egypt, the king had died and there was a new pharaoh who sat on the throne. Now, how does this all help us? How does this help us to be people who honour God and who trust in God? Well, first of all, let me say that one of the problems that scholars have uh, with Exodus is that they have a, a bit of a problem trying to put a date on when these events happened. Now, uh, from the Bible itself, in 1 Kings chapter 6, we can make some deductions. We can deduce from 1 Kings chapter 6 that these events happened in the 15th century BC. But scholars want more than that. They, they want more than just the internal evidence of the Bible. They want some external reference point as well. And uh, the scholars would, would much prefer it if the writer of Exodus had actually uh, gone to the trouble of telling us the names of the two pharaohs in this story. The pharaoh who enslaved them and the pharaoh right at the end. Because that would just help with dating. There are two pharaohs in this passage. And Egyptian pharaohs were very, very important people. The great and dazzling pyramids were built as tombs for pharaohs. Not these particular pharaohs necessarily, but they were built for pharaohs. The great and dazzling pyramids stand today in honour of pharaohs. But these two pharaohs, the Bible writer does not even consider them worthy to have their names recorded. Doesn't even mention their names. But there are two names recorded. There are two names which have been enshrined in Holy Scripture. There are two names in the story which two names which will still be remembered and known and honoured even when the great pyramid of Giza has crumbled to dust and blown away. And not the names of two powerful pharaohs, but rather the names of two humble nurses named Shifra and Pua. Two godly midwives who defied the greatest ruler on earth because well, they served an even greater ruler. Because they feared God more than man. And like them, so too should we. That's true greatness. These are names worth remembering. Secondly, Pharaoh, we're told, had forgotten about Joseph and his family. He didn't even know who they, who, they are, who they were. He had no idea about how God had blessed Egypt through Joseph. 
No idea about why these people were living in his land. He'd forgotten. But God had not forgotten them. Despite his best efforts to kill off the descendants of Abraham, Pharaoh was constantly frustrated by God. Because, friends, God is a faithful God. God is a one, a God whom we can trust. That when God makes promises, that God fulfills those promises. God has made a great promise to us that the death of Jesus was on our behalf. That the death of Jesus means that on the day of judgment that we who have our trust in him will be declared righteous in God's sight. That's the promise of God. That is the promise which we stake our lives on. The promises made to Abraham would be fulfilled. And so too, friends, would the great fear of that first Pharaoh, the great fear that he had that the people of Israel would one day walk away from Egypt. And now the stage is being set for that very thing to happen. More of that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a sovereign God, that you are sovereign over the affairs of men. And we thank you that you are a God of promise, a God who is uh, trustworthy of your promises. We thank you how we see that being worked out uh, in this rough and tumble way through the history of Israel. But we know, Lord God, that... uh, that you are a God who does not forget the covenant that you've made and that you have your plan and purpose and it will be fulfilled. We thank you for the example of that and how that helps us to be confident in the promises that you've made to us in Christ Jesus. Help us to be people who, who like Shifra and Puah, trust in your promises and love and fear you and honour you above all things that our names would be remembered in the book of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.